My name is Gina Barreca. I'm a Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of English Literature at the University of Connecticut, and I'm a columnist for the Hartford Current, written a bunch of books, done a lot of speaking. I have a good time. I'm 63 years old. I'm from Brooklyn, New York originally, and I've lived in Storrs, Connecticut since 1987, which is when I started my job teaching here at the University of Connecticut. Welcome back to 25 for 25. I'm Panina Beatty. Dr. Gina Barreca has been teaching at the University of Connecticut for over 25 years. When she was 25, she was just beginning her career studying women's humor and literature. Since then, she's written over 15 books, has a weekly column in the Hartford Current, has been on Oprah, Dr. Phil, The Today Show, and was in the first class to include women at Dartmouth College. Whew. Currently, she's writing a book about loneliness and humor. Gina and I met in her office, filled with books and posters and trinkets, including a Barbie doll dressed as Tippi Hedren in The Birds, which is my favorite movie, or one of my favorite movies. Definitely my favorite Barbie doll. In our interview, we discussed anxiety and ambition. She says that if you're ambitious, you never really get to relax. On the one hand, that drive never really goes away. But on the other hand, the insecurity does, which is great news. Here's Gina Barreca on 25. Where and when were you when you were 25? Oh, when I was 25? Let's see, I had just come back from Cambridge University. I was a graduate student at Cambridge after going to Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. I got something called a Reynolds Fellowship. And I came back to my old apartment, well, what was then my new apartment, which I still think of as my old apartment, at 416 Lafayette Street, which was pretty much across the street from the public theater on the Lower East Side, which is now a neighborhood I don't have enough money to walk in, let alone live in, although my squat yellow brick building, which is rent stabilized, is still there. And, uh, but uh, these huge glassy, multi-million dollar apartment buildings have grown up around it. So I'm sure it's feeling a little shabby and and overshadowed, but I'm it's still a tiny squat yellow brick little um, sort of uh, you know pillar to its own old time community. And so at 25, I had no idea what I was going to do and was starting to back into graduate school, which is how I got into graduate school, because I was working as an adjunct teaching composition classes uh, at Queens College. I was doing that at night because a friend of mine uh, told me that somebody had dropped out of that job, which happened often because it was contingent faculty. It happens with contingent faculty. They're poorly paid. They don't get their schedules until 15 minutes before the class starts. Um, and so I took the job because I uh, finished with uh, my master's or second BA from Cambridge. And so that qualified me. But then in the second year I was teaching at Queens, they said they weren't going to use adjuncts uh, or any contingent faculty unless they were part of a graduate program. 
And I really like teaching. I was working during the day at ABC News doing speech writing, newsletters, whatever in-house writing they need. So that was a real day job. I needed to pay off my student loans. I needed to make rent. And, but I liked the teaching. And everybody told me I should go into teaching, and I dismissed them. I said, that's not what I want to do. Every girl with a big mouth and an education, they said, you should become a lawyer, you should be a teacher. Those were the two options. Generation before, they told them you should be nurses or secretaries. Um, and some people are fabulous nurses, and some people are fabulous executive assistants. I knew I wasn't going to be able to do any of those things they were telling me to do. And but I, So the teaching, I sort of rejected. It was like I'd done student teaching in high school one semester, and I was exhausted. I was no good at it. I hated it. And I liked the kids, but I hated everything else about it. They made me like go to a gym class. I didn't go to gym classes when I was in high school. I didn't have to participate, but I had to watch them. And the terror and horror of even being in the physical education environment came back to me. I hate sports of all kinds, and I just can't stand them. And um, I, you know, so I was having flashbacks. Um, and I, was surprised when I got to this composition class in the evening, which went from you know six o'clock at night to eight o'clock at night. How much I liked it! I enjoyed it, and I, I walked in. All the, all the students, I think, except for two, I think there were thirty in the class, were older than I was, and um, they were working at night or they just come from their day jobs. And I said, I can't teach you anything about the world, but I can teach you how to write. And that was the deal. And um, so I thought, okay, to be able to keep doing that, I'll go to graduate school. You know, I'm good at school. I've been at school my whole life. So I started taking classes. And then I discovered that I really liked that. And so I kept um, working full time, but I did development for Queens College. And I taught in the evenings. And then I did my PhD. And when did you finish your PhD? When I was 30 in 1987, and I got the job here all the same year. Oh, wow. And the dissertation was on hate and humor in women's novels. Okay, so you've been so you've been studying humor since the beginning, humor and women, yep. women's literature, since the beginning. Yes, since the beginning. I, um, I was told by my advisors when I, uh, I still, in fact, I came across the document recently when I proposed <laughs> The topic and the head of my department said, um, I don't really think this is a reasonable topic uh, because there really isn't humor in women's novels. I mean, it's it's absolutely categorical. Never and, read Jane Austen. And no, but it was really, it's more, Jane Austen was considered a man of letters. At Dartmouth, uh, where I was an undergraduate, they had um, a beautiful reading room with stained glass windows from probably the 1890s and such things were the vogue and in spelled out in the stained glass in the Sanborn library it says man of letters and one of them was Jane Austen <laughs> so Jane Austen was an inoculation it's like if you send me a little bit of measles so they don't catch it so people would refer to Jane Austen yeah. um, or Elizabeth Gaskell she was Mrs. Gaskell. Except, well, which which said, oh yes, 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 some, but only Jane. Yeah. The Janeites right. would say that they referred to her by her first name, and um, they said, you know, the the young men who took her into the trenches in World War One, and um, and then were slaughtered. But we don't go into that. But they have pictures of you know them reading Jane Austen, but uh, and they said, no, we don't think that that's appropriate. And why don't you do working women in 
the novels of Dickens and why don't you do something else? And I said, I really want to do women in humor. <laughs> and I think it goes with anger because that's what I'm feeling now. <laughs> I'm being told I can't do women in humor. And um, so uh, they said, I mean, I'm astonished to hear myself being able to say this, but it's true. They said, if there had been a tradition of women's comedy in literature and women's human literature, don't you think someone else would have done it? <laughs> I was like, not that I'm seeing, because I'm really looking around here, and there were all of these works for 400 years. I'm, I'm going from Erasmus on and going back to Aristophanes, and boy, there's a lot of stuff on humor. There are six books on women. There's not a lot of overlap, but other people had. I found a wonderful woman who became a mentor named Nancy Walker. And she was uh, first at the University of Alaska, and then I think she went to Missouri, and she ended up at Vanderbilt. And she was actually, but around the same time I was, in the middle 80s, um, doing work on women's humor. And she did an issue of American Studies about women's humor in American novels. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it was like we found each other. It was just the beginning of the internet, and I think actually initially we had a couple of actual letters and then we, she was one of the first people I ever emailed. And then someone named Judy Little um, at the University of Indiana and a few people started to sort of come out of the women's humor closet. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was shocking to me that there was nothing on this and that what had been written about women went into comedy, everybody went back to Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson's idea that, you know, for um, sort of like for a woman to speak in public, sort of like talking about women preachers, um, was like watching a dog walk on his hind legs. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's interesting because uh, it's unusual. Um, and uh, so it's an anomaly, it's a freak. And, and I'm thinking back to May West, and I'm thinking about, you know, Moms Mabley, and I'm thinking about the musical performers, and I'm thinking about the women who were on stage in the 18th century, and, you know, Fanny Burney, and I'm, and so I'm thinking, I don't think I'm, I, maybe everybody else paid attention when they said there's no women's humor, but I'm going to write this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how it started. You mentioned that you had uh, a mentor of sorts. Um, how did you kind of go about, uh, I mean, you found her, and I guess, uh, what were the kinds of things that you kind of spoke to her about and uh, that you worked with her on? I think I wrote her a letter and just said, like, I'm so happy to think that there's somebody else, because she was probably an associate professor mm -hmm. at that point. I don't think we met for 10 years. I mean, so it was really... Uh, uh, really reaching out. I have no shame, which is a, a gift that I was given as opposed to, you know, shining hair or something, you know, at birth by one of my fairy godmothers. So no shame has helped me. So I just wrote and said, like, I'm doing women's humor. Like, I think somebody said, you're doing women's humor. Are you doing women's humor? And then I put together, and I didn't, again, know I wasn't supposed to do this, but as a graduate student, I... Um, published two collections with academic presses. And I didn't know that people didn't do that. And it was good I didn't know that because I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but one was with Macmillan of London on sex and death in Victorian literature, which I originally titled Coming and Going. And then the press said, <laughs> we, uh, Ms. Barreca, 
we, we can't publish a book called Coming and Going. <laughs> and I said, well, I'll call the introduction then. How about, so the introduction is called Coming and Going, but the <laughs> title is Sex and Death of Victorian Literature. And I got, I think, a dozen top uh, Victorian scholars to contribute, and then six of my other friends who were still in graduate school, so it was a nice mix. And then I did one on women in humor that was called Last Laughs. And that still gets a lot of attention. It still gets cited in scholarly journals all the time. And it was the same sort of idea. So I, I had a number of very senior scholars, uh, literary scholars, and then a number of what we like to call emerging scholars, uh, but my friends at the time, write pieces for that book. And then by the time I was finishing graduate school, I had another book under contract called Daughter of Last Laughs, but that became, um, uh, again, as I mis at that point it was Dr. Barreca, we can't do that. And so that's called New Perspectives on Women in Comedy. And um, so that was another collection. So it was sort of laying the groundwork. And so Nancy Walker was someone, uh, the mentor figure, uh, was just somebody who, uh, she contributed, I think, to both volumes. She just helped put me in touch with some of the senior scholars. But a lot of it was just absolutely being aggressive and ambitious mm -hmm. and shameless and just going to people and saying, I can put these books together. Mm -hmm. How are we going to do this? Mm -hmm. And doing it. That makes me think of, of myself in a lot of ways because uh, one thing that I've always been told is uh, you're very precocious mm -hmm. um, and it's not really said in a complimentary way. Mm -hmm. When you were 25 or around that age, was there a time where you kind of had to like ask yourself, you know, why am I like this or? or I, why, do, why do you think that stops at 25? <laughs> right. Did you get a note that said, I do it every day, <laughs> every day. I ask myself, why am I like this? What am I doing? Am I doing this right? Am I supposed to be doing this? Do I have to keep doing this? Why? I mean, who on earth else thinks this is useful for me to be doing this? So that doesn't stop. I mean, the joke is that people think it stops. Think it stops, and that uh, I would say that this one of the interesting differences between young men and young women is that women get caught up, and I've written about this. Women get caught up in the idea that we are the ingenues, and that's really dangerous that we are, we're the young woman who is unlike every other young woman, and that we're not frivolous and um, ridiculous like the other women our age, that we're smarter, we're like guys, mm -hmm. because we're ambitious and we're smart, and that we're not doing all of that ridiculous stuff that other mm -hmm. girls are, and we're not um, trivial the way they are, and we have guy friends, and we're doing other, and we are gonna re be replaced at age 38 by every other ingenue who comes in, by every other young woman who's going to get picked by the male boss who says, no, you're not like other girls, because the important part there is girl. And so you have to be not only twice as good as everybody else, all the rest of that stuff, but you have to be so good that you're irreplaceable. And to be irreplaceable, you have to make yourself a space that no one else can occupy. Mm -hmm. So you have to do something not only that's really good, but that's original. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you have to see what's missing, and you have to be willing to do it. And the really hard part about that is, is that you have to um, do it all the time. And it's really hard. I mean, that's the hardest thing. I had one graduate student, it was a very poignant moment. She came in 
a couple of years, not that long ago, five, six years ago. And she said, okay, so I get my PhD. You know, I, I publish, you publish while in graduate school, which is important. And I said, I, I get my PhD and let's say I, I get a book contract for the PhD and let's say I get a tenure track job and let's say I get tenure and let's say I, I marry my partner and let's say I get to, I said, at what point do I get to relax? And I said, who told you, you get to, who told you that? Yeah. I said, if you really want to do this stuff, you want to be a writer, you want to be a good teacher, you want to be a good colleague, you want to be somebody that other people turn to for advice and help, you want to be a strong woman in whatever profession you go into, mm -hmm. it doesn't stop. I mean, you make time to relax. You can have a good time. Mm -hmm. I watch Law and Order, I mean, over and over again. But I mean, I, you know, I cook, I do things that I like to do, mm -hmm. but it doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. There's somebody at the door, there's something that's due, there's a column, there's a person, there's a, a whatever. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point you said, no, I, I have to do this now. I can't do this other thing. But it's not like at some point you, you stop saying, why am I doing what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. There's not an age that you get to where <laughs> that stops. So in case anybody thinks I can get to a certain point, I've written 10 books, I've edited 17, now I can relax. Sadly, you're out of your mind. Yeah, I think there's a, a definitely a myth of uh, hoping at one point I'll be mature. Yeah, no, that, well, mature is different. I mean, I think the one thing you can hope yeah. for is to be content. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm more content because it's sort of, you know, real accomplishments like real education is something people can't take away. So even, God forbid, I'm biting my tongue, crossing my eyes. If I never do anything again, which is, a, you know, I hope would not be the case, at least I've done stuff that I'm proud of. So that's nice. Um, but Around when did you? Uh... I know, 15 minutes ago. What time is it oh, okay, now? Great. Yeah, yeah. 3.23. Yeah. yeah, I think it was about 1.30 this afternoon. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about when I started changing my jacket because I didn't like the way I looked in the other jacket. As if anybody in <laughs> class is looking and going like, I don't think that gray looks good on her. I changed three times in the office. Do you keep I, spares? I do. That's smart. It's ridiculous. Yeah. No one's looking at me. I understand that. But still, it was like, I don't think that that looks good. It's a different neckline. I should have worn <laughs> a necklace. It's, it doesn't stop. Just in case you think it stops, it doesn't stop. It doesn't. It doesn't stop. <laughs> just, just so that you know. I wish people had warned me because I really did think, did it stop? Does yeah. it stop? <laughs> I still think that my husband's 75. I still think women are flirting with him at a party. Okay? I mean, on some level, that's nice. Oh, isn't that cute? The old people are still jealous. It's not cute. It's not yeah. cute. I see some young, sexually brought a 58. <laughs> oh, damn, damn. <laughs> and I know he's just looking at, like, the shrimp platter. But <laughs> I'm thinking, why is he looking? You know, it's, it's, it doesn't stop. Just in case. At 25, I would have thought, oh, It'll look stop. to be somebody. Imagine, you know, I used to think, like, at a certain point, you could rest. But if this is who you are, the most you can go for is content. And content is good. I feel like content is good. Yeah. Content is nice. Satisfied is good. Mm -hmm. Printing out, I finished a new collection that I edited. There are lots and lots of young people. There are many, 33s of people had some kind of connection with UConn out of the 75. There are Pulitzer Prize winners. There are five New York Times bestsellers. There are the greatest women cartoonists in the country. There are all of these people who did original pieces for the book. I am very happy 
with the collection. Um, and so printing that out, or having to call my assistant print that out, was enormously <laughs> satisfying. So to hold a manuscript is still a great thing to be able to do. And um, But I'm still thinking about the next thing. It's like, yeah, but what if I don't get that contract for the next? What if the loneliness book doesn't work mm -hmm. out? So it's still the specter of this other thing. And I wish that I could get a note that tells me it'll be okay. So I, I like to think that there's some later version of me still out there saying it'll be okay. So I'd like to, I write notes for students. I could write one for you saying it'll be okay. I'd love it'll it. be okay. <laughs> I promise it'll be okay. I promise it'll be okay. You have to have a job with dental and eye care and whatever you have to do follow your dream as long as it includes dental <laughs> that's really it your passion has to include you know they should pay for at least part of your glasses i mean that's you know a regular checkup mm -hmm. so the passion is good as long as it includes a way that you don't have to borrow a lot of money from family members <laughs> then it's fine then the passion is good so your book about loneliness is that something that you've been thinking about writing about for a long time? I've been thinking, I realized that it was something that I've always written about because it's really been part of my life. Um, I grew up with a mother who was really clinically depressed and at the end of her life was agoraphobic. She died when I was 16. And so there's a lot of loneliness in my childhood and I think it was a really big part of my early life. And, um, and I realized that it's a big part of a lot of people whose lives are um, involved with comedy and you were writing. And so I thought, okay, I've got an angle into this that I'd like to, uh, again, a particular perspective I'd like to use. And so I'm trying to, I feel like I'm uh, like, like a plane circling over O'Hare but not landing. I feel like I'm still looking for the landing strip into it. I have an eight, you know, I have like I have an agent who's excited about the book, so we'll see. But I need to I need to revise the proposal in a way that's going to engage her even more deeply, uh, because she wants it. Says you know this is a real book, and right. so I have to do it like a real thing. And <laughs> so uh, so it's been daunting. I mean, but that's good. I mean, it's sort of like I feel like I'm sitting up straighter at the keyboard, and that I really have to sort of. Um, figure out what it is that I'm really trying to say about loneliness, creativity, because that's really what it comes down to. That's the angle I want to take is loneliness and creativity, how loneliness is different from solitude, um, what the sort of vision from the margin is about how it's work, why it's outsiders who get to have a uh, perspective um, that other people don't have, how this figures. How has your writing style changed uh, over the years? That's a nice question. I think it's gotten braver. Um, I think I'm, as I'm always encouraging the people who ask for my advice about writing, it's like you have to be willing to touch the electric fence. It's like you have to not write as the good child. Betsy Lerner's book, um, The Forest for the Trees, is one of the best books that I know about writing. And she always says that, you know, 90% of the manuscripts that she gets are from good children, from people who write well and have a perfectly nice story to tell and they tell it perfectly well and it's not interesting whatsoever. <laughs> and, and then there are people who are just trying to make a scene, but scenes aren't actually interesting. You know, somebody throwing a tantrum, making a rant, that's also in itself not interesting. So how is somebody who is articulate, original, um, 
can express their most personal idea and thought in a way that everybody goes, oh my God, I know exactly what that means. And it's always going to be the most particular, the most personal, the thing that that individual believes that no one else has ever done that actually gets to everybody mm. immediately. And so, but that's, that's going to be hard to do. That's always hard to do. And so I think I've been braver about doing that um, as I've kept writing. And I think, you know, for the columns that I do every week for the Hartford Current that go out on the wire, um, I think that I have a better sense of um, what people, what readers respond to. And uh, while I don't write for them, I'm aware of who's reading them. And, um, and I like to think that... Um, that again, the, it's it's always interesting that the more personal I am, the more letters I get saying that's this is my story. What you just said was my story, mm -hmm. and so I write generically about big ideas. People are like, oh, that's nice, mm -hmm. and then I write, I am my own grandma, and I talk about cooking at the stove, wearing an apron and a sweater and a house coat, where I look at myself and I think, oh my God, this is I am the best dressed <laughs> woman of 1948. You know, this is not pretty. <laughs> And everybody's like, oh, my grandmother wore a house coat. I'm wearing a house coat. Guys are writing to me going, that's my outfit. I'm wearing a house coat and a sweater and an apron. And and this is, you know, these are the, you get 40 emails saying the same thing. And they're all saying, you just told my story. And when you're thinking, I'm just admitting, this is not how I want people to picture me. But in fact, if everybody's picturing you, then that's how you want to be pictured. If everybody can connect to that, then that's great. How has your teaching style changed? Teaching style has almost stayed the same. I mean, what's different about teaching is I used to wear four-inch red high heels and short skirts because <laughs> I was 30. <laughs> I, didn't, I had hair down to my shoulder. I had very big hair. Um, I really looked like something out of an 80s video. <laughs> I mean, it was just... and. Um, so that uh, I have, there's one colleague, Jason Cormash, who teaches here, who's a student of mine. And, you know, it's like, he used to wear those. Now I wear flat shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I have hair is less big and it's gray. And it's, but I think that style, and I no longer sit on the desk with my legs crossed. I sit, you know, I stand because it's good for me to stand up. But I think that the teaching, because that has always been my most authentic voice um, because I learned very early on that I couldn't pass as anybody except somebody loud and vulgar and, um, uh, I, you know, uh, not somebody who's going to fit into a conventional definition of femininity and yet somebody who was a real girl. And I realized somebody was always lower class, always working class, and, and I realized that I wasn't going to be able to hide it, so I'd better exploit it. And that came through in teaching right away. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think it's helped a lot of other working class kids, both boys and girls, both mm -hmm. men and women, who have stayed in my life. That's one of the great things is I, have, I just got a letter, a request for a letter of recommendation for a, a woman who I had as a student in 1987, mm -hmm. wants to go back to school to get her therapist degree from NYU. She's like, you were my teacher. They want something from someone who's a teacher. 1987 is a long time ago, but that's <laughs> still fine. And I still remember her very well. And she came out with me to do 
a TV show in LA when I was really afraid to fly and I wouldn't fly by myself and she came out as my student. She had frequent flyer miles. Her dad was an advertiser or something. And she got into the car for the, um, uh, the driver that they sent and she said, do you want complete silence or incessant chatter? And I was like, I love you. I think you're amazing. <laughs> and so she flew out with me to do the Tom Snyder show. And um, and that was great. So of course I'll write. She was a therapist, even you know, the six months out of her undergraduate degree. So now she can just be it officially. <laughs> what got you up in the morning? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, fear of not having a paycheck. Um, I've always uh, I've always say would. People say, what in, what's, what's your muse? So I, I don't have a muse. I have a deadline and a paycheck. That's my muse. Um, and I'm always in it to work. I've never been in a position where I haven't had to support myself or part of a household that was self-supporting. And so there wasn't anybody else who was going to do this if I wasn't going to do it, which I don't think is a bad thing. And um, and curiosity uh, or deep fear and anxiety. I mean, there were years of my life when I would just be up all night, just absolutely driven by terror of what was going to happen and fear that I was never going to be able to do anything and that I would end up living in a one-room apartment in Queens where the screen was torn and I would be doing shift work and, you know, taking you know, uh, somebody else's Metro card, not that they were Metro cards, stealing somebody else's tokens to try to get on the subway to get to my third shift job. Um, the fear of not only being unsuccessful, but being needy and having to depend on other people was always terrifying. And my way of meeting terror of the fear of being alone, abandoned, and impoverished, which were all pretty much linked to me, um, was to get up and do something, was to get a sense of control. What was your relationship like with your family? Uh, they were, again, my mother was very sad, and I think I spent a lot of time trying to divert her more than anything else. Um, so I think, in part, I learned to be funny to try to make her feel better. Mm -hmm. But also I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I learned to be funny because if you're not funny in Brooklyn, people will kill you. And I grew up next door to Judge Judy, and um, she was the girl on the block who went to college and uh, who uh, nobody knew she was gonna be who she was. She was Judy Blum. She was the dentist's daughter, so she you know, was fancy because she was the dentist. Sure. Murray Blum's daughter was gonna do fine. His son, David, who I had a crush on, <laughs> became a dentist because the only way there are dentists in the world is that other dentists make them. Sure. People don't become dentists. <laughs> They're just made by other dentists. It's a cloning <laughs> sort of process. And, um, and I see Judy a couple of times a year. Still, I saw David recently. We saw them in Florida. Um, so. You know, we've remained friends but she's the same she has the same accent I mean you put the two sure, of us yeah. together and you know 
and also we devolve really into the <laughs> real Ocean Avenue. So at some point, you know, it's like, really, what are you talking about? You're not, you're out of your mind. Nobody ever did it. But we're really talking about like her grandmother used to yell at me because I ate the honeysuckle off the bush that was between us. And old Mrs. Blum used to go, it's our bush, it's our bush. And then, you know, there were big arguments about over <laughs> whose, whose side of the fence the bush was on. Um, but so, I mean, girls in those days um, you either learned as I say in the introduction to the book that's coming out on uh, it's flash fiction by funny women and um, flash nonfiction by funny women and um, that you learn to be funny I mean usually especially women around my age um, learn to be funny because it was the only way you could be heard if you weren't going to simper or make a cooing noise um, no one was going to listen to you if you were just going to try to be smart. Mm -hmm. You would be ridiculed. You would be silenced. You would be mocked. You would be slapped down. But if you were funny, then you could get people to hear it because they couldn't stop hearing it. It would be like flinging out a Frisbee and a Labrador couldn't help but jump up and get it. You said something funny and then somebody laughed. You knew that they got it mm -hmm. despite themselves. For that one second, they got it. Even if they then spit it out, they hated it, they wanted to contradict you. But for that one moment, if you got somebody to laugh, you knew that they understood what you were saying. And there was a triumph in that that I always enjoyed. So I would say that that I learned in my family, that at that big, loud table of the immediate family of 117, that you learned you, you got one line in that people could hear and they laughed at, they remembered it, they heard you. It's like, who said that, you know? And she, they would always say about me, probably they still do, she's got a mouth on her. That one, she has a mouth on her. It was like that that girl was not supposed to have. It's got a mouth on her, that one. So it was not something you ever heard said about a boy. Because mm -hmm. boys were supposed to speak up. He doesn't speak up. What's wrong with him? Right. But she's got a mouth on her. So it was a very big distinction. Mm. So, uh, and again, my mother, I wish that my mother, my mother, uh, uh, neither my parents graduated from high school, but they were both readers, and I think my mother would have been very happy. I like to think she would have been very happy to see that I've written books and translated into other languages and all the rest of this, but, um, uh, and my father, you know, always thought this was nice, but, you know, and was, again, a really very smart man, but, um, you know, really never got the whole teaching at the university thing, and I remember when he came up here, he was like, okay, so you teach in three days a week. And I said, yeah, it's a tenure-track job, this is great. He said, yeah. So you know, you could waitress the other days. And I said, dad, no, really, I have to do research. He said, no, 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 waitressing, all cash business, all cash business. I said, no, really, dad, I have to publish, I have to do this, I'm just saying. But it was all cash business, could waitress the other days. So I'm thinking that's probably not how other people, you know, came to their tenure track job, their, I mean, right. I, I got the job before I finished my PhD because I had published these three books before I completed the degree. I mean, it was like, ah, all cash business. But this was like when I got into, into college and I told my aunts who were stirring the pot of food in the basement kitchen and I said, I'm going to this place up in New Hampshire for college. And I thought they were scared about the money. And I said, no, 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 it's okay. I got the scholarship, I got work study, um, I got student loans, and my aunt's starting the pot of food, and she said, New Hampshire. And I said, that's fine. She said, no, nah, you're pregnant, right? 
And I said, no, it's a really good deal. She said, nah, happened to your cousin Elaine. Said you can always come home. And I thought probably I'm the only person matriculating at Dartmouth whose family looked and said, you're pregnant, right? That's why I go to New Hampshire. So, you know, it's interesting ways to enter all of these people come through different gates yeah. as they enter institutions mm-hmm. and um, you come prepared mm-hmm. for different things. But my father, the smart man, when you drove me up in a 1967 Buick Skylark where the muffler was dragging on the ground. I mean, we sounded like bikers coming into Hanover, New Hampshire, which is the whitest place I'd ever seen in 1975. It makes stores look like Paris. And um, he looked around at all these kids, and I'm looking around at all these kids, and they all look like they're from the planet Pepsodent, that these tall, blonde athletes. And he could see my face. And he said, smartest thing you ever said to me and I tell it to my classes I told it to many students over the years some of them have written about it he looked at me he said you don't like it here you take the next bus home and that was freedom and that gave me more permission than all the parents who yelled at their kids you better do well do you know what we're paying do you know what it got to take you here do you know what a privilege it is do you know how much is riding on you do you don't like it you take the next bus home and that's always been the case with taking any risk. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not chained to a radiator. Mm-hmm. There are people who are chained to radiators. There were people who, my grandparents, who worked, you know, in the sulfur mines in Sicily. Mm-hmm. People have it worse. Mm-hmm. So you don't like it. You take the next bus home. You could leave. You have the privilege of being able to stop what you're doing. Do you know what a privilege that is? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people in the world who can't stop what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You don't like it. You leave. I think about that every day, too. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's always like you got to do this and it's like eh. well, you know what you don't have to so yeah. it's always it's always a choice everybody everybody's got 24 hours everybody's got the same amount of time nobody has more time than anything else mm-hmm. a lot of people have different allocations of gifts but everybody has 24 hours so it depends mm-hmm. on how you use them and then you know it depends on what decisions you make you stay or you go that's also mostly up to you, if you have the privilege of that being up to you. Mm-hmm. Who were your friends? Most of them are still the friends I have now. Okay. I'm really lucky in my friends. I have friends from high school that I speak to twice a week. I have friends from college who I have their keys to their apartments in New York. They come up and see us all the time. Um, so it's a lot of the very same people. So uh, one is a screenwriter. She teaches at NYU. Um, one is, she's in healthcare. She does, now. I mean, people have risen, you know, they're my age, they're in their 60s, risen to sort of the top of her profession in terms of working with healthcare systems. She does loans for not-for-profits. She judges whether these places should get the hospitals should get mm-hmm. the loans for the new wings they're putting up or something. So she's assessing that. One guy from my freshman English class was the head of the Asia Bureau at the Wall Street Journal. He's mm-hmm. now a serious big shot at the Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, the healthcare friend is married to another guy who runs an advertising agency. Uh, she was my roommate. He was the boyfriend since sophomore year. <laughs> so they've been married for, you know, since the Code of mm-hmm. Hammurabi was published. And, um, the friend on Long Island works with kids who are autistic, and she's been doing that. Her kids are still living on Long Island, although now one of them is teaching at a charter school in New York. My brother still lives in Brooklyn. Two of his kids live in Brooklyn. Another one lives in Vancouver. So, I mean, so it's a lot of the same players. 
So that's also, I mean, I'm, it's, it's important. And the ones I made, there were very few people from graduate school who remained friends from graduate school. It was probably the time in a way that I was least myself. Mm. Um, because I think I was, you know, I, it was, I had no idea what I was doing and um, why I was doing it until I sort of settled in. Mm. And then got a peer, but also still most of my friends are not academics. Some of them are. Some of them are in different places. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm lucky enough to have a life with people who are, do lots of different things for a living. So it's not always talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. What was your love life like? Um, I had, I was in a bad first marriage when I was actually not at 25, at 27. Okay. So at 25, I was living with the guy who had become destined to be my bad first marriage, <laughs> um, who was uh, uh, actually somebody I married because I didn't marry the guy I really wanted to marry um, in England. But um, so uh, he was a musician and photographer and um, I spent a lot of time, which was not a bad way to do things. I mean, we spent a lot of time um, hearing him play music at different places and schlepping around. But then when I got the job up here and we were still going to CBGB's until 3 o'clock in the morning, and then I would teach at 8 o'clock in the morning. We would drive from New York. And at one point he told me I was getting middle-aged because he was two years younger. Um, and I thought, this, this is, this is going to end with a hug and a kiss. And um, so we parted ways, and then I met my husband of 29 years up here, which is what you do in Stores, Connecticut. <laughs> you meet the if you're going to stay in Stores, Connecticut, you meet someone else from Stores, Connecticut, because it's really hard to get somebody else to come to Stores, Connecticut <laughs> and say, "This is where I've always wanted There's to make trees. my life." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, and really, friends from New York, the sister of the healthcare friend, when she first came up to visit. Um, she said she thought the cows, I mean, she actually said she thought the cows on Horsebound Hill were signs for Ben and Jerry's because Ben and Jerry's, we were up in Vermont, and so we were at college. There used right. to be the cutout cows, so she saw the cows, and she thought there was a Ben and Jerry's there because she thought they were signs. Uh. But no, So that was actually true, and my true story, because people think I'm making it up, and I'm not. I don't have the wit to make things up. I actually just write things down. Right. That's all. But I do that a lot. And um, the first year I was here, so 1987, the fall of 1987, there was on campus an Apple store. And so I went to the Apple store because I had a Macintosh computer. The Apple store sold apples. It was part of the agricultural school. It was fruit. I walked in like, you know, looking for a keyboard there was fruit there were like Fiji app I mean I had it wasn't it, actually like the Apple store no it was a store full of bins of apples at the agricultural school I I I had no idea I really I thought this was like a trick I'm walking it's an Apple store <laughs> but it was like carved into the building I mean it was like an old sign and it was yeah. Wouldn't you think? I mean, now, of course, no one would think that. How did you feel about yourself? Worse than I do now. So that's one of the advantages of getting older. Uh, much more anxious. Um, a lot fewer years of therapy. Um, 
I think I was more self-doubting, um, more insecure, uh, much more worried that I was um, uh, going to fail. I mean, that was a constant fear. Um, uh, fear that I was somehow, um, somehow, uh, you know, a typical sort of imposter syndrome, I guess, that I was somehow getting away with it, that at some point somebody was going to figure out, you know, uh, sort of like the letters that I got. They said, well, there is no, don't you think someone else would have discovered a history of women's comedy if there was one? And I'm sort of surprised that I had the guts to say, actually, I'm going to do this. But I feel like, I was saying to a student earlier, that it's almost as if I can go back and tell that younger woman, it's okay, it'll be okay. Like the notes that I write for students, it's like I'm writing them to my younger self. It really will be okay. Mm-hmm. You can, it'll, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Other people will go to you as somebody who promises that there is this. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, there is, it's okay. You're seeing something that's there. Um, so that it's, it's not inventing something, it's excavating something that's always been there. You're like an archaeologist and you're brushing the dust off something that exists. It's not like I'm inventing a new formula. Mm-hmm. It's like this has always been there, it's just nobody's seen it mm-hmm. this way before. It's always been there. It's just nobody's looked at it mm-hmm. from this angle, so you haven't seen the bones of this huge structure, this huge creature that's been there, this women's humor creature yeah. that's been there. And I'm like, you know, Indiana Jones or whatever, sort of, you know, <laughs> taking this off. And um, so, uh, so I think, you know, I, I like to go back and tell that young woman that it'll be okay. But I think she, you know, she remains often stuck in that moment. And I think that in that anxiety, it's always sort of getting stuck out of that. It's just realizing, you know, there's stuff to the side and there's mm-hmm. not necessarily in some cosmic way, but just like there's you know, it's okay to take a deep breath, it'll be fine. And either the worst will happen or it won't. Mm-hmm. And one way or the other, you're gonna get up in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're smart, you'll take a shower, cross <laughs> that off your list, and yeah. you'll have, you know, a reasonable breakfast, and you'll cross that off your list, and you'll get on with the day's work. You know, because your later self will be grateful that you did that. Yeah. Because some woman at 63, or God willing, 85, is gonna go, no. This would be oh to be that age again. Although I would never want to be, another, I would never want to be. I have my friends now, um, you know, some of whom you know they took time to stay home with their kids and, and whatever. But this like they're coming out of like they took an exit ramp and they're getting back onto a different road, and they're saying, oh, don't you want to be? Wouldn't you want to be thirty five again? When you're, it's like not for money, and it's like, and they're saying, but deal with these 20 year olds don't you envy them it's like you out of you have you spoken to a 20 year old recently it's, it's so hard it's such a tough job to be young and people <laughs> forget it because they just think oh everything worked nothing ached i could plug it in without falling over i could you know and it's like you know they it's it's again a sentimentalization sentimentalization it's a a return to something that never existed right so it's a nostalgia for something that was never really true, and that's a falsification of life in a way that only destroys the present, as opposed to actually enhancing mm-hmm. what was there. So, so it was fine, but thank God, mm-hmm. 
is done. I mean, there's an afternoon here and there. I wouldn't mind reliving. But that, as a whole, you had to take the whole package. <laughs> I'm very happy other people right. are doing the heavy lifting of being 25. Yeah. And I'm not. <laughs> Maybe you could be 25 with all of the wisdom that you have. No. Nope. No, absolutely not. No. Nope. Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, wow. No. Uh-uh. No, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to. Do, I'm not. I'm not. Again, I don't need a do-over. Yeah. If you do it, you know, right. you live like you're supposed to. You don't have to do it again. Mm. So, no, I think that that would be like having to go back and redo everything. I, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like if you sit and eat a good meal, do you want to go back to the appetizers? You can bring a USB of all of the books you wrote. So that you can <laughs> just just get in your deadlines. <laughs> no, but it's just really no. But it would really be. I'm just thinking it would be like sitting down to start a great meal over again. Yeah. Skeevy. It's like I'm full. Yeah. You know. Were you, did you ever think about death? Oh, I think about death all the time. I think about death every 15 minutes. When you have a parent that dies at 16, right. you think about death all the time. Sure. So my mother died when she was 47. So when I got up to 47, I thought, yeehaw. Mm -hmm. um, that felt like a big accomplishment because I assumed I was going to die at 47, which is mm -hmm. typical. Um, have people whose, you know, their parents die at a different age. You think about when you come up to that age, actually, however yeah. old you are, that's pretty typical. And... Um, so uh, I think that's one of the reasons I also felt like I really needed to front load my career. Is that I'm going to do everything I have to do now because I don't know how long I have. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that time's winged chariot has always been hurrying near. Yeah. Um, and that's okay because that's, you know, if it's not today, it's going to be at some point. If it's not some point, it's going to be today. So mm -hmm. Hamlet got that part right. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that's mm -hmm. the... That's very much um, like whatever you have to do, you better do it now instead of later. Mm. What do you think about 25-year-olds today? I think they're adorable. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think that, it's, despite what everybody else says, I see a lot of them, I don't think they're very different from the 25-year-old that I was or that I knew. Um, there are different vocabularies. But there always are. Every mm -hmm. couple of generations has its own vocabulary. Um, I think I'm always reassured that when I have people, uh, people my age, older people, audit the classes, um, they come out of the classes going, these students are impressive. They work hard. They do stuff. They're not, you know, they're empathic. They're interested their area diet their whatever and I'm like those are the ones who are in my classes first of all so I mean I weed out the herd fairly yeah. early on um, yeah um, so you don't there's no reason for anybody to stay who's not gonna at least add something to the class and that's fine and um, and so I don't think that there really is very much of a difference I, th I think that um, and when I say a different vocabulary, I just think that um, the this generation of 25-year-olds has a different kind of understanding of anxiety, and they have words for things, and harassment, mm -hmm. and power structures, and uh, there's a parsing mm -hmm. of, uh, again, power dynamics that we were just learning to look at. But 25 years before me, that was 
you know, when Simone de Beauvoir and, you know, Betty Friedan and it's sort of like, so everybody comes to different realizations at different times. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think that, you know, the sense of appetite, the sense of ambition, the sense of, um, depending on who you're talking to, that's still there. And for the people who, you know, for some people that was never going to be there no matter when or where they were born. And for other people, that's going to be there. And the people who are, there are people who are getting published when they're undergraduates now. And there are people who are finishing their PhDs and they've never sent anything out. And so it's, again, it's, you know, that's been the time, you know, that's that's always been the case. It's interesting uh, you were talking about uh, like women in every generation kind mm -hmm. of have their own vocabulary and their own challenges. Mm -hmm. I, 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 it always, it reminds me of a story that my mom tells. My mom is a, a, a rabbi, mm -hmm. um, and she was in the first class that included women in her ah. uh, her movement. And there's one story that she tell or that she's told me that I'm like fascinated by, mm. which is that when she was in rabbinical school, there were teachers. It was the first class of women. Mm. There were like seven women in the class of like thirty. Mm -hmm. um, there were teachers who opposed letting women in. And she had this one teacher, a Talmud teacher, um, and she studied, she, she had a study buddy, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it was a guy and they studied together. And when they took the tests, they had the ex almost the exact same answers because they studied together. And for their final, she they took the exam, they studied together and her study partner got a B and she got a D. And they compared answers, same exact answers. And so she went to the dean, and they had to go through this whole process. And at the end of the story, like when she finishes telling me the story, I'm like, so what happened to the teacher? And she was like, oh, he just had to change the grade. Yeah. Like, that's all that happened to him. And to me, I'm like, are you kidding me? That's like the worst thing I've ever heard. I, you know, how could he not have been fired or reprimanded in some way? How could the system not change? Right. Because to me, right. Because to my generation, you know, my mom is like, well, I was just happy to be there. And I was happy that they changed my grade. And, you know, screw that guy. <laughs> screw that professor. Right. But I won in the end. But I'm that's like, exactly because you know that the, the change, it, it's, you have to make changes from outside the gate. Then you have to get inside the gate. Right. And so she had to get inside the gate to make, in fact, systematic, systemic changes right. so that the next generation of women um, would not have to face what she was going to face. Because it's not going to be one battle at a time, but until women reach positions of power where they don't have to apologize for themselves, where they don't have to apologize for being women, where the first thing about them isn't going to be the fact that they're women, but the fact that they're very good at what they do. Um, and even, in fact, if the first thing about them that people notice is that the women, they're going to know that they have to shut up about the fact that the first thing they notice are women because they're so good at what they do. And that's fine. I mean, it's like, well, what if the first thing I notice is that you're a woman professor as opposed to just a professor? It's like, then don't say anything about it because you sound like an idiot. Right. So learn to keep that part in your inside head. You know, as opposed to your outside <laughs> your head. Inside that's head. fine. That's really yeah. okay. That would be like not saying anything else stupid that you might be thinking. There are a lot of <laughs> stupid things you don't have to say. This is one of them. You know? I mean, yeah. it's really, it's like, that's fine. That's okay. Just learn not to do that. Learn not to fail the girl in the class. 
right? right. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's, you know, but she, I think she was one. I mean, this was, you know, when I went to Dartmouth, there was uh, there was a one to seven male to female ratio. And I thought I was going to be Miss Budweiser. You were amongst the first, first class. It was the third class of women who matriculated. Right? Yeah. And so I thought that was going to be fabulous until the guys were like, where do you go to school? And I'd say here, and they'd walk away. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, this isn't how it was supposed to be. Yeah. I thought you'd be lining up like at a bakery oh. taking numbers. You know, I didn't right. realize that I was going to be the competition as opposed to the object of desire. It's like, mm -hmm. I signed up to be object of desire. I didn't, I didn't sign up to be object of like recoiling and like competition. <laughs> and since I am, I'm going to do better than everybody else. <laughs> yeah. So that was it. Gave me a lot of time to study. <laughs> Okay, so 25-year-old Gina Baraka mm. comes in, sits down with us, mm -hmm. joins us. What does she think? She thinks, oh, look, she got her own office. <laughs> <laughs> she got to put stuff on the walls because I was in a bullpen as a graduate student. Like, there would be, in, in literally, this kind of space, there'd be, like, nine people, yeah. which graduate students still have. Yeah. And with nothing on the walls, you could put anything on the walls. It was not yours. It was not. And I would think I'm living in a private home because I was 25-year-old. She was living in this my old apartment building in my 416 left half street but at that point i was living next to really crazy people who were screaming all night they were some kind of addicts uh, poor souls but i i was i asked my brother whether i should get a knife and my brother said you with a knife is a joke and he said a piece of advice always always been a good line i don't think i've ever written about it he said you should never carry more than you can use and that's true for everything. You know, it's true yeah. for weapons, it's true for money, it's true for emotional baggage, it's true for everything. You should never carry more than you can use. That's why you carry two extra jackets. I carry, I have, I gave a girl a jacket last night, she came without a jacket, it's class. I gave her a coat, she was walking back to her car, it was freezing last night, 7.30, I said, take a car, I got 17 coats. <laughs> a refrigerator full of Diet Coke soda and protein bars. I can, you know, if this is when the apocalypse is coming, this basement office is not a bad place <laughs> to be. Um, we can all cuddle the dolls, we can eat whatever food is here. We have the Diet Coke, I think I, you know, I've got, you know, sort of like uh, Gazavon or, you know, stomach pills in the drawer. I got aspirin. There's hair products. There's hair products. We have makeup. <laughs> I have little dolls that you wind up. They sing. I have a magic eight ball from the NSA because a former <laughs> student works at the NSA. And I think it was George Bush who said something like, yeah, they work with an eight ball. So the NSA actually, and I'm sure this is something that, that I could sell amazing. for a fortune on eBay. Oh it's actually God. from the NSA. So it's, if you know, academia doesn't work out, you can sell Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or I could just sell myself to the NSA. I'm sure and <laughs> uh, I know where all their secrets are buried. So uh, Gina would be very proud that I live um, in a private house, <laughs> not next to, um, that I've been in a, a good, happy, uh, really uh, generous marriage for uh, almost 30 years, um, that I still have the same friends that I've had my whole life, that I can cook for other people, that I can provide. And that, you know, like I, I got to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And that I think she'd be proud that I'm trying to pass it along. Mm. I think that um, that feeling um, like I have enough so I can pass along things is a good feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think she would be relieved to know yeah. 
that I didn't feel like I had to hoard everything emotionally, intellectually, spiritually um, in the same way. Was there a song or music that you <laughs> connected to? Everything, everything. I was listening to music. So 19, so I would have been, what's the year? If I'm 25, so it's more 57, so that's 83? Yeah, I believe so. Um, so 83, actually, this, the whole interview has been wrong. Because I really just got, I was thinking it was 85. So, <laughs> so forget everything I've just said. So 83, I really just got back from England. Um, so whole, whole interview was, we'll, we'll, just, we'll add two more interviews. We'll make it 27 <laughs> to 27. No, no, no. But it's, um, no, it's all the same. Yeah. And if, so yeah. I'm thinking, so what was I listening to? Oh, Joan Armageddon, not Armageddon, Joan, what's her name? I could hear the album in my head. It's not drama. It's not Armageddon, but it's like that. Um, God, I was probably listening to. Um, what was it? Take on me. Take. Aha! Aha! I don't know what years these things came out. Um, I was listening to The Police. Mm-hmm. I had a radio show on WBAI. I did a once weekly radio show, Pacifica Radio. Where I used to play the police all the time until somebody said you have to pay the police to play the police. It's like, oh, what? that there were copyright issues. Somebody called and said there were copyright issues. So I, I was allowed to play the police as much as I was. Um, oh, yeah, you can't play it like twice in one hour. Yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. I don't, somebody <laughs> had to do that. Um, and so now I, I, a lot of country music. I liked old country music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be listening to. Uh, you know the really because that, that's when funny country music was really coming out. So it'd be like, "From the gutter to you was not up," was one of the lines, and um, "Drop Kick Me Jesus through the goalposts of life," and um, Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson, and so those guys. I was listening to them a lot. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about them in a long time. So I didn't have a theme song, but you had to actually listen. You had to have radio luck in those days. You had to. You know, yeah. you had to actually listen for the radio, listen on the radio to get a song you liked, as opposed to having it immediately at your fingertips. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, there's something uh, something thrilling, in my opinion, about listening to live radio or watching mm-hmm. live TV. Yeah. No. Hon- it's, honestly, it's, I truly believe that. Yeah, it really is luck. I would listen and have that be like, is this going to be a good day or a bad day? What's the song mm-hmm. that oh, I turn I like on that. when I get up? I mean, it would. It's like, oh, God, this is really, it's Blue Bayou. It's Linda Ronstadt singing Blue Bayou, and I'm going to, like, shoot myself by the end of the day. I mean, it's just like, you know, I'm coming back one day, come what may. You know, I really, this is what I'm going to do for the whole rest of the day. And then if it would be, you know, Billy Ocean or something, I would feel it's going to be an easy day. It's going to be fun. So, Okay. Dr. Vareka, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Ms. B. Thank you very much. I look forward to hearing what you're doing at 63. Oh, my God. That sounds... Drop, kick me, Jesus, through the goalposts of life. End over end, neither left nor to right. Straight through the heart of the righteous uprights. Drop, kick me, Jesus, through the goalposts. Thanks for listening to 25 for 25. Our theme music was written and performed by Tom McCauley and Brandon Stradling with help from Little Machine. 
Our logo was designed by Woozy Kurtz. I'm your host, Panina B. I've got the will, Lord, if you got the toe. Drop kick me, Jesus, to the goalpost of life. End over in neither left nor the right. Straight through the heart of them righteous uprights. Drop kick me, Jesus, to the goalpost of life. Bring on the brothers who've gone on before And all of the sisters who've knocked on your door All the departed dear loved ones of mine Stick them up front in the offensive line Drop kick me Jesus to the goalposts of life End over end either left nor the right Straight through the heart of them righteous uprights Drop kick me Jesus to the goalposts of life A lowly bench warmer I'm contented to be Until the time when you have need of me To flash on the big scoreboard that shines from on high And a big Super Bowl way up in the sky Drop kick me Jesus to the goalpost of life End over end neither left nor the right Straight through the heart of them righteous uprights Drop kick me Jesus to the goalpost of life Yeah, drop kick me Jesus to the goalpost of life End over